Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today's topic is, Can Your Business Survive the Rapid Advance of Technology? I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. This includes helping leaders identify the disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and into the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on how you how you lead and transform your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am really excited that today our guest is Terry Jones. Terry is the founder of Travelocity.com and the founding chairman of Kayak.com and the author of a new book, Disruption Off. For the last 15 years, Terry's been speaking and consulting with companies on innovation and disruption. He began his career as a travel agent, jumped to two startups, and then spent 20 years with American Airlines, serving in a variety of management positions, including their chief information officer. While at American, he led the team that created Travelocity.com, served as the CEO for six years, and then took the company public. After Travelocity, he served as the chairman of Kayak for seven years until it was sold to Priceline for $1.8 billion. So today's conversation, the burning question many businesses should be asking is, can your business survive and thrive the rapid advance of technology? So Terry will share how existing corporations can change and adapt the new to new products, as sometimes it's forgotten how to discover new things. His advice, you better take a risk. If you don't, you'll be gone. So, Terry, I'm delighted that you are joining us today. Is there anything you want to give about your background before we jump into the first segment talking about disruption versus innovation? Well, I think you you covered my background pretty well. I guess I'll say this. You know, I started my career as a travel agent 50 years ago. And uh, the first day at work, I had to make a reservation. And my boss told me to send a telegram. I was fairly shocked. But telegrams actually still existed back then. My last company that I started four years ago is in AI. So that's a fairly interesting span of technology in one career. Um, and we all knew tech, now technology is moving faster now. And that's really the point of uh, my book and my speaking uh, is there's so much technological change coming. Um, we have to be prepared and we have to be ready for it and take, as you said, take the risks necessary to keep our businesses relevant. Thank you. So let's jump into the quote that we've heard you say before, what people can do about disruption 
is be more innovative. You only call it disruption because you didn't do it, which is a fabulous <laughs> quote. Yeah. If it were something you did, you would call it innovation. Can you talk about not just the behavior, but the mindset and share some examples? Well, you know, uh, the chief of Panera Bread said that many times in companies, our delivery muscle gets stronger than our discovery muscle. Every company was started by an innovator. I mean, you think about Jobs or you think about uh, Watson at IBM or Fred Smith at FedEx. You know, people thought they were crazy. Um, and yet they ended up building massive companies. But when we get into the routine, particularly in public companies, of meeting quarterly earnings, it gets harder and harder to take risk. And that's where people stumble. And the interesting thing is, particularly as we look at these new technologies, they don't have to be big risks today. You know, we have AI testing, we have 3D printing where we can build models, we have the ability to test on the web. We don't have to take big risks, but we have to take them and we have to constantly experiment. At Kayak, for example, 20% of what you see every day is a test. We are constantly testing, generally failing, but always learning. And in fact, I was surprised to open the, the uh, Harvard Business Review this month, and there's an article about Booking.com, the parent of Kayak. They have that same ethos. Anyone can start a test. So it's about making people fearless enough in your company so it's okay for them to have a test that fails. And it's about killing projects, not killing people. Because when you do that and people feel safe, then you'll get a culture of experimentation. People will believe it's okay to try something and, and perhaps fail. Uh, because look, 75% of startups fail, uh, but they keep getting funded. It's just within corporations, we don't ever want to fail. And I think that's, you know, I have a lot of messages in my book and we can hopefully talk about many of them, but that's the most key one, is it making it safe for people to experiment and perhaps fail. You know, that that aligns with our belief that leaders need to take on the mindset of a scientist. And for me, that reframe is so foundational because if I'm a scientist, I have a hypothesis, I craft an experiment, and through that experimentation, I measure my results and I refine. Success is doing a good experiment, not not being accurate, not being perfect in predicting the outcome. But of course, we're, as, as a scientist, the work is creating good experiments and learning and growing versus being right and wrong. And, and for me, changing the mindset to hypothesis, experiment, learn and grow helps us get out of that, I made a mistake or I messed it up. Of course, it's not going to be perfect. Right. And I talk about that a lot in my other book, called, which is called On Innovation, um, because, you know, many people don't know that Travelocity started inside American Airlines. So when I was CIO, we had a little online project and travel agents were complaining about it because we had a big billion dollar business automating travel agents. They saw that as, as deleterious to their future, wanted us to turn it off. And we didn't. They gave it to me and I put it on the Internet and we built this product that was really head on against our supply chain, our distribution chain. But we did it anyway because my boss, Bob Crandall, the chairman said, look, somebody's gonna do it and we're best equipped to build this. We have to take the risk. And you know that, that became a $1.2 billion business. And um, you know over time, 
half the travel agents went away, so it was the right guess, could have been the wrong guess. But doing that inside a large corporation was not easy. Uh -huh. I, I had to move out of the building because I wanted to change the culture. I, I had to you know, get a separate budget. I had to pull the people in and really make it about Travelocity, not about marketing versus IT. Um, and there are a whole set of lessons there because it was it was quite difficult to do and not all companies can pull it off. But you have to have entrepreneurship today. Um, and in the end, you know, maybe it'll become a new division. Maybe you'll spin it out. That's what happened to Travelocity. Maybe it'll become a product line. The, uh, the, the head of Internet at REI told me, you know, we started the Internet as a separate division. And when the Internet grew up, we turned the org chart on its side and poured the Internet in. And dissolve the division because everybody's responsible for online commerce today. Right? Mm -hmm. That isn't how you start. You have to you have to keep it in the greenhouse to protect it, let it grow, um, and that's the job of the CEO as well is to provide the air cover for that idea so it doesn't get surrounded by white cells and killed like a virus, right? Well, yeah, and and many large companies have very well developed autoimmune systems. Oh, they do indeed. <laughs> they do indeed. That's why I have a nice career as a speaker, um, because they want me to come in. And, you know, I, I spoke uh, this week to uh, a company that's 150 years old. And, you know, they know they need to reinvent. And they have a new CEO. And she's saying, hey, look, you know, we're doing great stuff, but we have to continue to change. And with the, the connectivity of the world today, innovation happens so quickly. You know, uh, 90% of hearing aids are now 3D printed. And that change happened in four years. The wow. companies who didn't change are gone, right? Or, or look at, at GE. GE just got approved for the first 3D printed engine part. Um, and it, think about how it was made before. Maybe five little companies were making the parts and they sent them to an assembler who put it together into one part. And you know, then it was stuck in a warehouse and then it went on a ship and then it went on a truck and then it went to GE. So now GE 3D prints that part, they get a part that's cheaper, lighter, faster, stronger, fewer parts to maintain. And what happens to that supply chain? It's all gone. You don't need those five companies. You don't need the boat. You don't need the truck. You don't need the warehouse. You don't need the customs broker. They're gone. So when people say 3D print, printing is slow, which it is, but it only has to be faster than the boat. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's being shipped, it, right. now all you need is the raw material to use to put into the printer. Yeah, and then you can change it. So, you know, it's not for all industrial processes yet, but it will be. Uh, and when you add AI to it, you know, then you get designs that nobody ever thought of. Um, so, you know, the deployment on that says to even smaller businesses, you know, would you rather, maybe you better become the 3D jobber rather than what you're doing today. Um, you know, companies are stepping back and looking at their business models. And Philips, for example, just proposed to skip old airport in Amsterdam. They wanted to sell them light, not lighting, but light. We just want to light the airport for the next 20 years. And so they have a contract for light. Well, what did that cause them to do? Well, they immediately put in longer lasting bulbs because they're now Philips bulbs that they own. They immediately cut the power, right, uh, that they're consuming because they're paying the light bill. And when the bulbs do eventually burn out, they take them back to the factory and use the parts again in the circular economy 
because it makes sense for them to do so. But it's a much better business model than selling bulbs, right? So many companies are stepping back and looking at the processes today and say, how do I sell outcomes rather than iron? Which makes brilliant sense. And for our listeners who who own companies somewhere in the supply chain, I, I'm working with a client who's doing clinical tests on a medical device. And also it will be 3D printed when it's proven. And so cancer patients will shift from going to a clinic and seeing a doc to picking a, up a device in their local clinic and taking it home. So instead of having the, the handful of docs in the specialty hospitals scattered across the country, now you'll be able to go to your local community hospital, pick up your device and take it home and do the treatments on a, on a whatever frequency basis is required and smart chips are included and, and all of the things that make it usable at home, just having access to healthcare treatments. And I assume this will be one of millions of, of products oh, yeah, that can many. be now put in the hands of customers to fundamentally change. It'll change the supply chain. It'll change the hospital experience. It'll improve the quality of health for people across the planet. Those changes are foundational but it, but and it's also amazingly up, disruptive. Yeah, it's going to blow up some existing things. I mean, I was talking yesterday, I had a medical procedure in New York, talking with the doctor, and he's working. We've seen, for example, robots that remove prostates, uh, but now they have robots that can do biopsies where the doctor is remote. So we have a, a terrible problem in this country with rural health clinics. Mm -hmm. Hospitals are closing. Well, if you can have the device remote, you don't have to have the doctor there, right? So, um, you know, that's going to change where you get to live and where you get to work. I mean, many of us work from home, but now doctors can do that. So connectivity is very powerful. And, and a forgotten part of connectivity in the cloud is how, how much information now companies get when they have smart products. So the amount of information John Deere now gets from a tractor they know how the user uses the tractor, whereas before that was anecdotal information from the dealer they might get once a year. So they're able to iterate much faster. Those of us in the online business have known that, but physical products haven't done that. You know, it's, it's why my Tesla just got updated last night. I'm going to go out and see what new things I have, <laughs> many of which, you know, were ideas that people tweeted to Elon or they learned because the product is connected. So connected products also change the speed at which your competitors can iterate. And if your products aren't connected, you're going to be way behind. So we've got about two minutes left in this segment, and we can continue this question over the next segment. What do you think is the biggest barrier to choosing innovation over the way it's been done? Well, I, I think we've already really talked about it. Um, the, the primary one is, is risk. Uh, that people okay. don't want to take risks because it might affect their income or, um, you know, the income of the company or the income of the individual who says, well, if I take a risk, I'll get fired. If I do nothing, you know, maybe I'll get a 1% raise. Um, so I think that and, and not having a scientific culture of experimentation, I think, is a huge barrier. People, people get stuck. I, I, there's another one which has to do with siloed organizations. 
And I read a quote, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's someone's law. And it says, computer systems are designed in corporations around the way corporations communicate, uh-huh. which is why we have these silo-based systems, right? Um, you know, the, the CRM system is in marketing and the logistics system is in logistics, rather than looking at a company like Ant Financial, where it's all around the customer and they have hundreds of products around their millions of customers because the whole company is organized around the customer and customer data, which is a pretty new thing. Um, But again, if you don't do it, then you can't act like Netflix, which is totally organized around the customer and what they're watching, or around the hospital that's organized around the patient rather than around the doctor, right? Mm -hmm. Change, big change that gets in the way of innovation if you don't do it. So with that thought, I'd like to go on break and encourage our listeners as as uh, we are on commercial break to think about where will your supply chain likely get disrupted just by the few examples we've given here and where might you shift your thinking from taking a direction to to. Uh, becoming a scientist and taking on that experimentation. What's one experiment you might take in your uh, sphere of control over the next month? We'll be right back. This is Maureen Metcalf and Terry Jones, and we're talking about the question, can your business survive the rapid advance of technology? Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leadership co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back. You are joining Maureen Metcalf and Terry Jones, and we're talking about the subject, Can Your Business Survive the Rapid Advance of Technology? 
segment two, we're going to talk about traditional companies versus startups. So Terry, you've worked in big companies, served on 17 boards of directors and also founded startups. What are the key differences between corporations and startups and why do those matter? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, startups um, are, are obviously quite different and traditional companies tend to look at startups with fear. You know, established organizations view disruption with a threat. I have a little film clip in my speech, which is uh, uh, from a movie where, where uh, it's Butch Cassidy and you know, he's being chased and chased and chased and he's standing on a ridge and he says, who are those guys? I couldn't do that. Could you do that? How do they do that? And, and that's kind of the way corporations look at startups, except what corporations forget is they do have the supply chain. They do have the sales force. They do have manufacturing. They do have the brand. They do have capital. They have all the things startups would kill for, except maybe they don't have that particular product. Well, go invent it. Go innovate around it. Go buy the company. Go be inspired by it. Uh, but again, we're so concerned with getting the things out the door and having the next meeting and sending the next email, we don't do that. So it is the job of the CEO to have that mindset. And I think without it, that's where corporations fail. On the startup side, you know, you're you're scrappy, you're trying everything, you're changing, and you're pivoting all the time. You know, the idea you come with will never be what you end up with, but you've got to pivot and you've got to listen to customers and you've got to move very fast. And you know, you have a small team. So it's like the Amazon rule, two pizza teams. If it takes more than two pizzas to feed the team lunch, the team is too big. Right? Mm -hmm. It won't innovate because you spend all your time communicating. So I think the startups also are getting great advice from their VCs who see why startups fail and they're coaching them all the time. Um, and VCs know that 75% will die. You know, they're just taking chances. In a corporation, if you said 75% of our new things will die, that would, you know, it couldn't happen. And it doesn't have to happen. You know, corporations, because they have all those other assets, don't have to have such a high failure rate. They can have a higher success rate and they can also you know, fail small uh, because they have the ability to test today in ways that they never had before. But they also have to you know, say yes and not no. I use the example of a pinball machine in my speech and my book that that's how decisions are made. You launch a new idea out there and it starts hitting those flippers and marketing says, well, that'll never work. And IT says, well, we can't build the software for it. If you get through them, marketing says, we can't, we can't support it. And, and manufacturing says, we can't build it. And then if you manage to get through all those loops, then it's time for finance and legal. And well, it's just game over, right? Um, there's so many people who can say no. And it's a, in the 21st century, everybody has to say, yes, how can we get this out? Instead of the easy choice, which is no. And you know, that's a cultural shift that has to come from the top that says, I want to do these new things. How can we do them rather than why shouldn't we do them? Big change. You know, I, I worked with an organization that, that basically the bias was for yes. And the only reason you could say no is if that experiment was going to adversely impact another key part of your objectives. Otherwise, experiment, yes. That's great. Um, that that's that's very unusual. And you know, you look at an organization, the the higher company in Japan, which is a big uh, air conditioning and other kinds of refrigeration. They've now split into all these micro units, 
And the micro units, there are hundreds of them focused on the customer. And they can actually turn around to the organization and decide what corporate services they want to use. So, no, I'm not going to use marketing this time. I'm going outside. You know, so it makes the internal services really have to pitch their business to say, hey, you, you should really use me. I'm good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mandated because, it, you know, a friend of mine at, at General Catalyst Partners wrote a book called Unscaled. And you don't need scale today in a business in the same way. Um, my son started a video game company after he'd been at uh, Electronic Arts, the biggest company. And they only had four guys and they created a, a very competitive game. Well, how do they do that? Well, guess what? You know, their computers were in the cloud. They outsourced the people they didn't need. They used Kickstarter to raise money. Um, and, and the cloud makes such a dramatic difference that, that four guys and a dog have the computing power of a Fortune 500 company. So you can use the tools and tricks of a startup inside a corporation to be competitive um, and, and go ahead and say yes and get it done. Well, I think that's one of the key differentiators that you've just said. And for us, it's been a game changer is we have access now to services in the cloud that we just didn't have access to. Our, our training is now all offered online through um, Kajabi and we can do things with them that I could never afford to build you basically lease it and it's incredibly affordable and what the client gets is a much higher caliber and I'm focused on doing the things I do that are about helping leaders be more effective. I'm not worried about building the back-end payment processing system, which I would just never get right. Exactly. And, and you know, you can use all those tools yourself. I mean, for corporations, it's about how do I run the marathon and the sprint at the same time? Mm-hmm. And they're different, right? And, you know, I ran the computer system of American Airlines. Hey, that was, I've got to keep it up. I'm supporting 40 airlines, 40,000 travel agents. But I had to innovate at the same time, you know, and I had a different group of people who did that. You know, they mm-hmm. weren't the same. Um, and they, they think differently. It's just like the difference between customer service and marketing. They're different kind of brains there. And, and you have to think about how do I do that and where do I run those sprints most effectively uh, to continually experiment and, and push the world forward because there is no perpetual motion. I mean, I was out in Silicon Valley and got invited to a dinner with uh, Ken Chenault, who was then chairman of American Express about two years ago. And he was out, as he did twice a year, out seeing startups. And he said, you know, we started, American Express was a freight company. That's why it was Express, right? And then we became financial services. He said, I don't know what will be next, but it won't be this. I've got to figure that out. And you do, otherwise you won't be there. So as we think about the internet of things and drones and blockchains and robotics, um, connectivity, the cloud, all the technologies that I review in my book, you know, how can I put them to best use in my business and not have them used as a hammer to hit me over the head. Uh, and, and the same thing is true with business models. You know, as people look at platforms and subscriptions and outcomes, I mean, whoever thought people would subscribe to a razor? Uh, and, you know, it's a <laughs> big business, right? Men subscribe mm-hmm. to razors. And, and those new businesses, particularly subscription businesses, are learning about the customers so much faster. 
And I think learning is another point. You know, I had an AI company the last four years. The most important thing about AI is that it learns all the time. And so those companies who are far ahead in industries like financial services and autos and entertainment using AI are learning so much faster than those who don't deploy it. The uh-huh. other never catch up. They're in deep trouble because these machines learn and never forget. Um, and so if you're not deploying AI and you're not thinking about AI with these other technologies, AI and IoT, AI and 3D printing, AI and drones, uh, the guys who are deploying that, well, guess what? Their IoT is learning faster than yours. Their 3D printers are learning faster than yours, and they're getting a PhD while you're training them with you know, a, a blackboard and chalk. Not going to work. Well, and I think we've probably already crossed the place in many spaces, not all, where our machines can learn much more quickly than our people because of the computing power. Yeah, that's right. I mean, our brain capacity isn't going up. (laughs) So it's it's been flat for a long time. Um, And that's where you need computers to help you. I learned that when I I, I worked with IBM Watson. I got a call from Ginny Rivetti who said, can you come and teach IBM Watson about travel? And I was... uh, learned a lot about what they did with medicine. And you know, the number of medical papers coming out and the speed at which medicine is changing, doctors can't keep up. So you know, you need an AI assistant to say, have you thought of this, have you thought of that? Look what just happened over here. I just read 100,000 papers. This new thing is catching on, you ought to learn about it. And mm-hmm. it was very, very helpful to doctors who could reach out. It's like having a super smart consultant. I mean, the doctors still synthesized and determined what to do, but they, the, the capacity of the human mind isn't getting big enough to read all those papers uh, and, and to teach us. So you need, you need that help because um, there is no perpetual motion in business. You have to change. I, I, I spoke at another 100-year-old company, the Hartford Steam Boiler Insurance Company, and they still insure boilers. You know, every, every factory has a boiler. They started that with steamships and after the Civil War. And I said, what are you doing now? And they said, well, we... We just got into IoT and bought an IoT company because IoT devices are going to control factories. They're going to be extremely important in the process, but they're going to fail. So we'll do inspection like we do on boilers. We'll teach people best practice, and we understand risks, so we'll insure them. Well, that company is going to be 200 years old. They understand uh-huh. how to use their corporate DNA to move forward into the 21st and 22nd century. Yeah, I assume they'll put sensors on everything, and uh, just like you were talking about with Philips and lighting, they'll be collecting data from every one of those boilers and the parts in the boilers, and that will also... They'll do predictive maintenance. Um, You know, I worked with Honeywell, and Honeywell has had sensors for years in factories, and the red light goes on, you say, oh, what is... Now I got to see what that means. So it means the compressor's down and air conditioner five. Okay, now what I got to do? So they moved from sensing to meaning. They started putting up a computer screen that said air conditioning unit four is going to go down. Now to outcomes where it says eh, the system already turned on the backup and we've dispatched maintenance. It'll be up in two hours, right? So from sensing to meaning to action. Action is an outcome. So they now use the data to sell an outcome rather than just a red light on. That's a big change. And how this is where it starts to really flow over into people. How do I, 
my processes have changed, my staffing's changed, certainly the impact of uptime has changed. Right. So, you know, that that's where people need to understand we are in today a continuous learning environment, not only for AI, but for humans. And, you know, I, I give a lot of commencement speeches and I gave one at a large engineering school and nursing school. And I said, look, it's great everything you've learned here. But if you think you're done today, you're nuts. Because most of what you've learned here about technology will be useless in five years. Right? It's just not going to be important. But if you learn how to learn, then you're going to be successful. And so all of us have to be flexible to adapt and adopt to this faster than a speeding bullet technology. Well, so as that tees us up to then, can how can traditional companies avoid being disrupted by startups? And I think you've already hit a lot of the the main points and also the complexity that as a startup all i have to do is start up something new as a larger traditional company i have to keep the trains running or whatever phraseology you use i have to continue delivering to my customers as i am concurrently innovating and changing what i do and how i do it that's right and it's not just the product of course it's Today, it's the business model that surrounds it, the delivery, how I focus on the customer, how I organize my data. All that has to change in the traditional company um, because that's how startups begin, right? They begin focused on the customer in a, in a way that traditional companies may not be. Uh, they, they get too internalized. So it, it is about continuously experimenting, uh, taking those risks and, and realize your new customer your new competitor isn't going to be your old competitor. You know, Godzilla didn't kill King Kong. He was he was shot down by little airplanes. And that's what's happening today. Everybody's playing whack-a-mole against these startups and as opposed to going out to Silicon Valley and learning from them and, you know, maybe having a corporate VC arm that invests in them, as many do, or being inspired by their ideas or investing in them or buying them or copying them. You know, all of that's good. Um because you do have all those things that a startup would kill for in, in all your infrastructure. You just can't make a decision and move fast enough. So get them to help uh-huh. you with that. One of the interviews I did that I found most insightful was a, a CIO for a large company talking about how they do exactly that. They go look at startups on a continual basis and then they so they figure out what to acquire and then they partner i think with ibm i don't remember exactly and look at how do they scale what has what the reason they bought the startup so what is that thing and how do i integrate it across my service line or across my organization and in many cases then productize it so that it becomes a revenue generator or or a significant problem solver Oh, yeah. And and also, how do you do that without killing the startup? Uh, so I was with a big insurance company that everybody knows, and they bought a, a, a startup insurance company, very disruptive, and they kept it in its – they didn't bring it into headquarters. They kept it far away because they were sure they would kill it. I was in a small company, a computer startup that was purchased by American Airlines, and the CEO said, we're going to leave you in Florida for two years, and I'm not going to allow anyone to come here because they'll kill you. And he said, in a couple of years, you'll be good enough. I can bring you in. And in a couple of years, they did. And we were integrated and it worked. 
but he knew we were a fragile organism, right? So he wanted uh -huh. to use us as a petri dish and learn from us, but leave us alone long enough that we would become big enough that they could safely take us into the mothership without killing us, which is important. Yeah, it absolutely is, because that's the whole wisdom of bringing you in to begin with. So on that note, let's go to break again. And so for our listeners, this is Maureen Metcalf and Terry Jones, and we are talking about can your business survive the rapid advance of technology? And in this segment, really looking at how do we integrate startups and established businesses, not that there is one or another, but that that the, the intersection between the two helps us solve a lot of the problems on both ends. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leadership co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back to Innovating Leadership. Today, you are joining Maureen Metcalf and Terry Jones, and we're talking about can your business survive the rapid advance of technology? The third segment focuses on current and future disruptions. So with the, the increasing march of innovation and advancement and disruption, it only gets quicker. So what are the most disruptive technologies, Terry, that are facing business today? And then we'll move to future. Well, I think it's really the combination of technologies. As, as we think about the cloud, which allowed us to save big data, and then AI coming along that really, you know, if, if big data is the oil of the 21st century, then AI is the refinery. We are now able to produce these systems of insight. You know, we, we started in computing with systems of record, and then we moved to systems of engagement, all the online marketing stuff. 
And now we have systems of insight. And I think the companies that are doing this are applying real insights to their business, understanding their customers in a new way. I mean, Netflix has turned Hollywood on its head because they know exactly what people are watching and they are producing movies for more of those people. So they're designing them around the customers they have. Whereas, you know, in the hit business, you try hit and if it doesn't work, you try it again and lose a lot of money. Um, and now as, as we mentioned before, as I discussed in the book, Internet of Things, 3D printing, drones, blockchain, robotics, all of those are very powerful. But when you couple them with AI, they get uh -huh. extremely powerful. So in the 3D printing world, um, GM, uh, I saw a film that I use in my speech about redesigning a, a very simple part. It was just a seat bracket. But the AI allowed them to do a thousand iterations of the seat bracket and then build one that can only be built with a 3D printer. Well, why do they care? It has 20% less mass uh, and less weight. So you think, a big, I, I, could I build a car with 20% less weight? That's pretty revolutionary, right? So I think it's a combination of these things. Depends on your industry. You know, the, the way people are applying drones for farmers, in, in water treatment, in firefighting, the way we're using robotics. I was in Iceland recently, and I walked into a cow barn, and there, there weren't any people around. The cows wandered in. They walked over, and they were milked totally robotically while getting a snack. And then they left and went outside. And they're actually coming in more often and being milked more often. And there's nobody there, which is important because it's very hard to hire people to get up at 5 in the morning to milk cows. Nobody wants to do that anymore. So, you know, robotics just aren't at Amazon. Uh, they're all over in all kinds of business, uh, particularly if you think about um, robotic process automation, where people are using robotic robots to scan documents. There are robotic lawyers who are doing discovery. Most of the Bloomberg articles on, on uh, new company earnings are written by robots. Um, so all these technologies are important, uh, but when we add AI to them, they get even more disruptive. And then when you build a new business model on the bottom of it, uh, then it then it tends to go in and explode a whole industry. We've seen that in travel, you know, where new business models and connectivity gave us Uber, gave us Airbnb. Airbnb sold more hotel rooms last year than Expedia did, you know, and, and that's happened in what, six years. So, so you mentioned RPA, and I was going to ask about that. To me, one of the big disruptions is going to be now high-income job classifications. Doctors, lawyers, accountants will all be disrupted. How, what are you looking at in that space? Well, I think partly disrupted. I think that's much okay. harder. Computers are not doing a great job yet of giving advice. Okay. Um, they're doing it in some ways. So I think the Watson Physician's Assistant... I think rote work like discovery for lawyers, um, you know, that's where lawyers started, but that's not where they end up. Nobody wants to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Machines are doing a good job of that. And will they get to the point where they give advice? Yes, over time, they will. They're not there yet. Um, so I think they're really more, it's human assisted AI uh, in, in some parts of the business. Now, you know, AIs are writing ads. Um, and, and certainly, you know, the world of, of newspapers and writing has changed. Um, AIs are doing paintings. They're writing books. Not too good yet. Will be over time. 
So I think, you know, really today AI is an additive product, uh, it, it, depending on the industry. But, you know, look at the number of stock trades that are just done by AIs, much better than, than people can do. So there's mm-hmm. certain areas and you, you need to look at the lists of what jobs are going to be disrupted. Uh, I just had a friend who really pushed his daughter to change her major because he said, look, I, I don't think that major is going to be around. You know, so you need to look at the future. I think also we need to understand uh, that the edge in business has moved. I talk about owning the edge in my book. You know, owning the edge used to be about being at first in Maine. Owning the edge today is about being on the edge of the glass. It's having your product on my phone or on my computer because that's where we interact with customers. And people are doing this in innovative ways. Shell just integrated into GM cars uh, with the sensors so it knows when you're running out of gas and can say, hey, there's a Shell station one mile ahead and I'll give you free coffee if you fill up now. Waze, the traffic app, Uh when you're going to be stuck, and is now saying, hey, you're going to be here for 15 minutes on this corner. Want a donut? There's a Dunkin' Donuts right here, right? Um, Amazon, you know, has moved from those little uh, buttons they used to give you to put on your uh, washing machine to order Tide to now building APIs where my, my washing machine orders its own Tide and my printer orders its own ink. You know, so if you don't understand that that edge is moving out and that, when I talk to my Echo device, it only recommends one brand of toilet paper. What's it going to cost to be that brand, right? It's not mm-hmm. going to read. Me, it's not going to read me the thirty that I see online. It's going to be read me yeah. one. So we need companies as well to think about how these technologies are changing consumer behavior and saying, how do I get out to the edge? Because Uber is not a limo company; it's a software company. But mm-hmm. they destroyed limos and cabs by capturing the edge of where the customer was. And that's a new thing. Okay, that's that's an interesting just phraseology and certainly merits a lot of thought about, again, how do we think about innovation and disruption and what business am I really in? And if I'm in the cab business, it's no longer will black car disrupt me. It's now what software will disrupt me. Exactly. I made a speech at the American Limo Association five years ago. They said, how do we how do we fight back at Uber? I said, get some bloody software. You have yeah. the car, you have the driver, you have the brand. You're just hard to do business with. You got to be easy. And, you know, step one, install software. There is no step two. And they <laughs> didn't do it. They didn't do it. And, and we moved to easy products. Look, yeah. MP3s aren't as good as LPs, but, but they're easier. So we use them, right? Uh-huh. So let's move to a different technology then. Why will 5G be so disruptive? Well, I think 5G is going to be disruptive because of its low latency and and high speed. If you think about it, 1,200 baud dial-up modems disrupted books, disrupted music, disrupted travel. There are half a dozen industries disrupted by terrible slow dial-up. So what in the world is 5G going to do? I don't think we know. Uh, I think most of the prognostication is too small, but it's certainly disrupting the factory floor. I was reading an article today. I just just put on my desk about 5G on the factory floor. You're going to need it to connect to IoT. Uh, 5G is going to make self-driving cars feasible because of the speed Mm -hmm. at which the cars will interconnect, uh, really important, and also connect to the stoplights, right? Uh, 5G is going to make these remote 
uh, surgeries possible because of the speed uh, at, at which it operates. Um, it's going to change entertainment because you know we're not going to need cable TV anymore. We can use 5G connectivity. So there are lots of industries that are going to be disrupted. I just think we don't know because we didn't have any idea how many industries would be tipped over by dial-up modems and the internet when it started. I mean, nobody thought travel would be big. I, I played to empty rooms on Wall Street. Travel's the biggest part of the internet today. It's the biggest part of e-commerce. It's larger than the next three categories combined. Nobody thought that would happen. So I think we need to watch because so much, we know what happened when we went from dial-up to broadband, right? More, mm-hmm. It made Amazon, right? And then we went from broadband to mobile, uh, and that changed the world again. Now we have Hotel Tonight, right? We can book online only, a multi-billion dollar app business. When we get to this kind of speed, I think it's going to be very impactful, but I can't exactly tell you what it's going to do. <laughs> okay, but, but you hit a couple that are key, and some of this is self-driving cars and smart cars and smart corridors right. and, and for those... Sorry, go ahead. And IoT, the Internet of Things. Okay. We'll be mostly connected that way because you, you can't really wire up a, a factory. And, you know, I, I work for Boingo, a Wi-Fi company, and Wi-Fi is great, but it's not the best for that, uh, okay. for Internet of Things. And Internet of Things, you know, 45 billion things connected by 2025. Um, we all have thousands of sensors in our homes, but really factories and production will change uh, dramatically. Okay. So now let's go to 3D printing, and you've talked in several cases about uh, manufacturing facilities that can print parts, and that completely upends the entire supply chain. What else do you want to say about that? Well, um, you know, another thing is the construction industry. So we're seeing 3D concrete printers that are printing Mm. buildings and printing houses. Uh, I'm speaking Monday at the Manufactured Homes, Manufactured Buildings Institute. And, you know, they're looking at this because manufactured buildings are much more sustainable and less expensive than stick-built buildings. And they're saying, how can we deploy 3D printing to print entire buildings? We're printing uh, replacement parts. So I'm out on a uh, oil rig and I need a part. Well, today it takes a helicopter. Why don't I just make the part? So we're seeing those designs getting shared so I could make my own parts, right? And then customization, the jewelry industry is experimenting with that where I don't have to have inventory and you come in to buy a, a diamond ring here, a thousand designs, which one do you like? Press it. Okay, it'll be, it'll be done, you know, tomorrow. The, in, in dentistry and medicine, you know, they're not only printing, uh, or, printing limbs and bone, but they're beginning to print organs. Not ready yet, but it's happening. So in several years, we're going to see printed organs. So, you know, what started out as as a small industrial machine, people are really reimagining. And I think maybe that's, you know, I know we're close to the end now, Mm -hmm. to think about don't just reinvent, reimagine. You know, initially, we looked at drones and people said, well, let's, let's make a drone crop duster because we don't want somebody in that drone breathing in all those chemicals. And then somebody said, well, gee, but but maybe we could put infrared there and we could tell the farmer where to put more water, where to put more fertilizer. Uh, That's reimagining. And Uh now I met a guy who's using drones to deliver blood in the third world 
because blood expires and it's very hard to move around and they mm-hmm. can deliver it in just minutes. And they've been hired now to deliver blood all over North Carolina with drones. Uh, so, you know, that's reimagining. Uh, and the same thing with robotics. You know, we're now uh, sorting, using industrial robots to sort luggage at Heathrow Airport. So you can go to Italy in your bag and go to Moscow even faster than before. Right? <laughs> well, let's um, hope the robots do it better. Yeah, so maybe. Terry, we're in the last couple of minutes. Let's shift to tell us about your new book, Disruption Off, because you and I could talk about this for the next five hours, but unfortunately yeah. it won't be aired. Well, Disruption Off really is our conversation. So Disruption Off goes through 10 disruptive technologies. We've talked about most of them. Connectivity, 5G, cloud, AI data, and the rest, right? Talks about new business models like platform subscriptions, outcomes, uh, direct-to-consumer, and gives you examples of how they're being deployed so you can think about what to do in your business. But also the first half of the book is, is really to scare the heck out of you that this change is coming and you can't just sit there. And then the second part of the book says, what should I do no matter what is coming? You know, And, and that's the discussion of, of risky business, take small risks, create fearlessness, fix the odds by experimentation, you know, kill the silos, don't, don't have a pinball machine help you make decisions, right? Run marathons and sprints and the like. So there, it's, a, it's a very easy read, it's, uh, 75 three-page chapters. So it's very snackable short-form media, which people consume today. It can be read like a cookbook. Um, it's available on Amazon, and you can get it in paperback or in Kindle or in an audiobook. Uh, and it's really the companion to my other book on innovation. So if you, you know, realize, go back to the quote that it's only a disruption if you didn't do it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you can read disruption and then read more about how do I create a more innovative organization, which is, of course, what you help people do, and, and I do too. So I think it's so important uh, for us to continue to have a very vibrant and innovative American economy, and that means more startups, but more traditional business taking risk and experimentation uh, before they get disrupted. Thank you. You are an absolutely brilliant guest, and one of the things you mentioned was business models, and while we won't go into it now, I think that's something that is under discussed. We talk about the technology and RPA and AI and all of those things, but those don't work profitably unless we change the the underpinning business model. So this is Maureen Metcalf and Terry Jones, and we are talking about or talked about, can your business survive the rapid advance of technology? Our company focuses on elevating the quality of leadership across the world. And for our listeners, thank you for joining us. I hope that you took away something like the idea of experimentation and mindset shifts and Terry's brilliant recommendations. Please check out his book and also refer us to a friend. Sign up to listen to the podcast on a regular basis. We're available on Voice America. We're also syndicated on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. You can ask your Alexa to play us. And we are committed to this idea that our future success or failure depends on smart people, not IQ smart, but smart about topics like this, making daily shifts in how we live our lives and run our organizations. 
the more of this you can put into practice and share with your friends, the better our collective future is. So please make the changes and recommend us to others. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.